The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody. My name is Professor Des O'Neill, and along with Professor Mary Cosgrave, the Department of German and Trinity, uh, we co-direct the Medical and Health Humanities Programme in Trinity College Dublin. It's the longest running seminar series and has always aimed to integrate the philosophy and thinking of arts and humanities with that of healthcare. And indeed, we're pioneers in live video casting between clinical sites and the Humanities Centre in Trinity, because with travel and everything else, it was very hard for us and humanities people to go to the hospitals or practice centres and vice versa. So we've had, uh, COVID has been a challenge for all of us, but I think the acceptance and opening out of um, Zoom has allowed us to broaden our palette and bring at much less expense, uh, international and leading pioneers in the areas of uh, medical and health humanities. Uh, we're delighted today to welcome a speaker and a discussant, and in general, we try to have a healthcare person and an arts and humanities person to try and bring together the sense of interdisciplinarity and a common goal. So our speaker is one of the most celebrated and pioneering ethicists of the area of the deeply forgetful of what we know as dementia or Alzheimer's disease, Stephen Post. He's the Professor of Family Population Preventive Medicine and founding director of the Centre for Medical Humanities Compassionate Care and Bioethics uh, in Stony Brook University. And he was previously Professor of Bioethics in the Department of Bioethics of Case Western Reserve, very prestigious medical school uh, in Cleveland. Um, he's an elected fellow and celebrated in many ways. But I think uh, his seminal book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, really woke us all up to the importance of understanding, getting through the barriers of memory and language to understand the complete person uh, inside. Our discussant will be Professor Sean Kennelly, uh, a leading researcher, clinician, and humane practitioner in the field of dementia, leading the memory service in Tally University Hospital, with a range of services such as post-diagnostic counselling, but also now the first national intellectual disability memory service in Ireland. So delighted to welcome um, Professor Post to lead us out on this seminar today. Thank you, Professor Post. And let me pull this up. All right, so uh, let me just say, first of all, I am so happy to be in Dublin uh, I love Trinity College uh, and uh, Trinity Cathedral, uh, and I'm a half Irish, uh, a McGee from County Donegal, where they make McGee tweeds. So that was my narrative as a boy growing up. Um, I'm uh, always appreciative of uh, Dr. O'Neill's work and Sean and uh, Mary, thank you very much for uh, facilitating this. Uh, the title of this uh, presentation, uh, it may strike some of you uh, as novel. Uh, it's relatively novel, although I've been using this language for a while. Uh, Dignity for deeply forgetful people. Just think about that for a moment. Take a breath. Dignity for deeply forgetful people. And then how caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. I'll talk a little bit more about why I prefer the language of the deeply forgetful. Just as a quick comment of an introductory sort, uh, I think everyone is aware that life expectancy is different than lifespan, that lifespan is the oldest that any known representative of a species has lived. For humans, that's about 120. Um, life expectancy varies from society to society, depending on all kinds of different factors. But right now in the US, uh, the National Institutes on Aging uh, 
devotes full 60% of its budget to the basic science of aging uh, and senolytics, especially efforts to kind of uh, slow and compress the aging process, uh, hopefully having people live longer, but without uh, those kinds of chronic illnesses that have been uh, so difficult to solve uh, and that are um, all of them um, mainly precipitated by age itself. So the fight against aging as quote unquote a disease, I don't believe it is a disease, although some philosophers do. Arthur Kaplan, for example, uh, thinks of it in those terms. But that is the golden uh, holy grail of the biological revolution. If one goes back to uh, Bacon and the New Atlantis uh, in the early 1600s, uh, he had his uh, fountain of youth, his fountain of uh, longevity, and that ultimately was what, uh, what they were after. So we see this happening now, and it's not entirely a good idea, but it's something that is, is worth being aware of. Um, uh, Prof. Post, your slides aren't showing, if you meant to show them. Do you want to share a screen? Oh, okay. They're not showing? Wow. Okay. No. The, bring your arrow down to the bottom and the share screen. Okay, somehow, wait a minute, this really, really got, okay. And if there's an issue, Professor Post, I can share them and uh, you can just let me know when to advance. Okay, this should do it. Does that do it? Excellent. Okay, I'm sorry for the little confusion. Um, let me just proceed then. Uh, no problem. And if you just want to put it into presentation mode uh, down at the bottom down at the right bottom. hand corner, uh, just one over there um, beside right. the slider. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. So um, just for purposes of language, dementia is a syndrome or a cluster of symptoms caused by many diseases. And you all are aware of this, but a hundred years ago, I suppose the major cause of uh, dementia was neurosyphilis. In fact, that's why they began the Tuskegee experiments in the United States uh, uh, in the 1930s. Uh, unfortunately, it's a very difficult story, but they also did cardiovascular syphilis studies in the Nordic uh, countries. Um, is aging alone uh, the source of dementia, if we all live long enough, will we all become demented, to use that term? Uh, Dr. Alzheimer himself wasn't at all certain that he discovered some kind of new disease. And uh, one of his uh, disciples, Peter Whitehouse, uh, physician uh, in Cleveland, uh, has written a book called The Myth of Alzheimer's Disease, which I don't entirely accept by any means. But I think that he makes the point well that uh, we're really not quite clear on what Alzheimer's uh, is. And if it just sort of comes with a human condition, if it's just a part of brain aging that we would eventually all succumb to. Uh, and the studies of, for example, women who are in their late 90s uh, and beyond uh, indicates that it becomes very pervasive. There's also chronic traumatic encephalitis, Parkinson's, uh, vascular or multi-infarct. Uh, disease, frontotemporal, and so forth. So it's all there. Now, I'm interested in dignity ethics, hence dignity for deeply forgetful people. This is an illustration of uh, from my old copy of Gulliver's Travels. And these are Lugnagians. These are the Strulbrugs, the immortals that occasionally are born among the Lugnagian people. And at first, Gulliver is ecstatic about them because they uh, can uh, live forever. They are immortals. Uh, but then uh, someone mentions to him that in their eighth decade of life, they lose the common appellation of things. They have word-finding difficulties. And then sooner than later, they can no longer remember what was immediately said prior to the moment. So everyone hates them. They're hated by 
their fellow Lugnagians. And the king of the Lugnagians says to uh, Gulliver, uh, take one of these people, uh, uh, these Strelbrugs, uh, home to your own people to warn them against the fear of death. Um, now, I, I consider Swift to have been the first great dignity advocate uh, in the world of the deeply forgetful. Um, in, his, um, in his will, which established um, the uh, St. Patrick's Hospital, uh, he wrote, uh, not fear, but care. He had been on the board of Bethlehem in, in London, where uh, people who were deeply forgetful or had other difficulties were pelted, prodded, uh, even left to cool in the cold air in the, in the basement. Um, he wanted uh, St. Patrick's to be in the vicinity of general medical care. And it's, it is near what, um, in Dublin, what's, what's uh, now uh, something else, but it was once called St. Stephen's Hospital. And he wanted residents to, uh, from the Dublin area to be in uh, St. Patrick's and so that family members could visit regularly because he really believed in the value of interaction. Call him a biopsychosocial innovator. Uh, and of course, eventually, after writing his will, Swift himself succumbed to something that many historians think was dementia of perhaps the Alzheimer's sort. This is from the uh, uh, cabin of the, the ferry, the Irish ferry, the, the, the Jonathan Swift. Uh, and it's got just a beautiful statement about Dean's, uh, Dean Swift's special feelings for uh, people with these conditions. <clears throat> now, um, contrast the mindset of Jonathan Swift, who is a bit of a patron saint for me, you'll learn, uh, with what, um, what went on in um, Germany in the 1930s. Uh, there, uh, people who had cognitive disabilities of any sort, whether they were developmental or related to old age and decline, they were viewed as useless eaters, uh, life unworthy of life. Um, there were about 20,000 individuals uh, in a one year period from 1939 to 41 in Berlin who were taken out of uh, uh, asylums. Um, and uh, it's, it's said that half of them were probably uh, struggling with dementia, the other half with developmental conditions. Uh, and they were the uh, victims of the hypothermia research. So they would be left to freeze out in cold vats of water. Uh, they would be left lying in the snow in the winter. And then they would be brought in and, and quote unquote, thawed out at different temperature gradients and in different mediums. <clears throat> uh, the Germans uh, were strictly hypercognitive in their value system. That's a term I coined in 1995 uh, because I was so tired of people evaluating the worth of the lives of individuals who happen to be more forgetful than most of us, but they're still on a continuum of forgetfulness and they're still human beings worthy of, of our respect. Uh, but hypercognitive values, the idea that it's only a, a cognitive uh, dexterity that allows us to be really truly worth saving. That's a very destructive view and it's very, um, it's very common. It's part of Western rationalist philosophy. Um, uh, uh, John Locke and many others, this really goes back to the Greeks. Uh, you're, a, you're a person, uh, if you can project plans rationally into the future, and in some arguments, actually operationalize them. So it's this idea of rational, chronological activity that makes someone morally considerable and worthy of protection under the umbrella of do no harm, or in fact, to benefit under the umbrella of beneficence. The American courts were, uh, adhering to this view. Henry Ford was uh, absolutely a eugenicist. And of course, just a few streets away is Cold Spring Harbor, the great genetic uh, lab of the Western world in lots of ways. 
and uh, they were all in favor of um, eugenics and the elimination of the cognitively unfit. So <clears throat> there was a great, great clinician by the name of Leo Alexander. He was actually the one who wrote the Nuremberg Code. He was an army doctor. He was in Germany during World War II. And when it came time for the Nuremberg uh, trials, he was pretty much in charge of it conceptually. There was someone else, Telford Taylor, who was in charge of it just from a purely legal perspective. But um, um, Leo Alexander, uh, who was a physician uh, from Boston, uh, he was the one who actually uh, observed all of the incredible atrocities that have been inflicted on people in these vulnerable populations. And so he, what he argued in this fantastic uh, piece that uh, he wrote uh, after the war in 1949 in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, Medical Science Under Dictatorship, he said that the only thing that can really protect these vulnerable populations, whether they have ALS, whether they have uh, spina bifida, whether they have uh, uh, Down syndrome, whether they have dementias of various types. At that time, they spoke about senile dementia, not Alzheimer's disease. Um, the only thing that really protects is the idea of a voluntary association, an organization of concerned uh, citizens, uh, basically a constituency group that will uh, muster support for these particular individuals and uh, advocate for them and protect them. And, and, and I think that um, uh, Des O'Neill and myself and many others uh, have worked very closely with the Alzheimer's Association over the years uh, with that in mind. Most of my work has been somehow linked uh, with uh, real people uh, struggling with real problems in a society that is truly uh, biased explicitly and implicitly against people who are more forgetful than we think we should allow. Um, one of my colleagues here at Stony Brook, Eva Kite, did a wonderful book, Learning from My Daughter, The Value and Care of Disabled Minds. Uh, uh, this book has just won all kinds of awards, and, and it's about her lifelong relationship with her daughter, who has, uh, you know, quite serious uh, cognitive um, uh, incapacity, but nevertheless loves the Beatles and um, and 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 likes Mozart. And if uh, a smile was was electric, uh, the, the the Discovery Center where she lives in upstate New York would be on fire. And so Eva actually um, in the introduction of this book talks about how she has really disowned philosophy, even though she's been a philosophy professor all of her life at the best universities in the world because of this issue of hypercognitive bias. Uh, but she will hang out with me in our center. So I'm happy to say that. Um, and then there's a wonderful book called Bioethics and Disability about the tension between the disability advocacy movement and the bioethics movement on everything under the sun, in 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 including, for example, uh, selective abortion. I mean, how, how much do we want to siphon out anybody whose cognitive abilities may be slightly not up to snuff in our modern technological societies? But this goes to issues of end of life, of euthanasia, and so forth. Oftentimes, it's the disability advocates who are really struggling uh, in the face of the bioethicists who would sometimes abandon people with disabilities to uh, autonomy or worse. So that's important. I think therefore I am, this is this idea that somehow my very existence rests on my capacity for linear rationality. Um, uh, I beg to differ, but I recognize how serious it is to experience that sense of loss and cognitive compromise, but there are other things that can come in and replace it. And being a bit of a mystic, I'm okay with that. I, I was in um, Bangalore, India in 2015, uh, doing a, uh, an address uh, at the 
Indian National Institute for Advanced Studies. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And the topic was consciousness. And they took my language and the deeply forgetful. Should have been deeply forgetful people. Um, but anyway, I was giving this talk about how uh, people can lack rational capacity and linear rationality, but they still have full consciousness. They can still appreciate the beauty around them. They can, they can recognize voices. They can interact in so many different ways. They can be creative. So they have consciousness. Why are we so stuck on linear rationality? I suppose because it's related to economic productivity. Uh, but at any rate, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama came in because uh, he hangs around Bangalore and the Institute. I didn't know him. I've never, I'd never met him before, but he just came in and he, and he, and he sat down and nobody really batted it an eye because I guess he's, he's there often enough. And then afterwards, uh, he put his hand down on the table and he said, this is right. You, you should never value someone just on the basis of their rationality. It's consciousness that is important. It's consciousness that affords us our moral and spiritual dignity. And uh, everybody clapped. I clapped too. It was kind of fun. Um, so why deeply forgetful rather than dementia? You know, dementia is a negative word. Let's face it. It, 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 ha it has to do with a decline from a former mental state. It's often used derisively, including by politicians. Um, deeply forgetful is a term of inclusivity of affirmation on a continuum, and even of mystery beneath the veneer of communicative chaos or of silence. I have never had the audacity to think that uh, there's nothing there anymore. There's no one home, that someone is gone, a husk and so forth. That is completely uh, irresponsible thinking because we simply, at, at, at worst, we don't know. We're, I mean, ag agnostically, uh, we, we, we're just, we're just not aware of what's going on. Um, and, you know, many of us forget where, we, where, where a car is parked. I actually had a professor at the University of Chicago who would come in and, and he'd ask us if he drove to work today, which is really particularly singular. So for him, he, you know, he couldn't even remember that he, that he had a car at all. What is mine? This is the great philosophical, metaphysical question of all time. Is there something about mind that is mysterious, that is there underneath neurological adversity. Um, many of the great physicists, uh, mathematicians, and um, uh, spiritually minded people have thought that, well, you know, mind is a more fundamental reality than matter. Uh, not that evolution doesn't occur, but somehow mind is more than tissue and cells and and, and organs, it's, it's, it, it's something completely unique. And maybe it is the source of all that exists. And so therefore the idea of mind before matter, which is essential in the consciousness of about 90% of the people in the world, including all Hindus and um, people from uh, all Asian faiths, but it's also classically uh, uh, Jewish and Christian in the beginning was the word. So there you have it. And modern day philosophers of mind, like Thomas Nagel at NYU, a very famous guy, been at Princeton for a long time. What is mind in his book, Mind and Cosmos? He really thinks that there's nobody in um, um, the neurosciences who has even come close to demonstrating how consciousness can arise from matter, that they're just so substantially different in nature and form and substance. Um, um, so this is not an unreasonable viewpoint. Now, um, this is uh, Rudy Tansy, who is a very interesting neurologist at Harvard University. And he's talking here about paradoxical lucidity. Uh, how many of you listening, I don't know, you know you've, you've uh, been in, uh, with someone who's quite severely demented and even near the end of life. And lo and behold, uh, they, um, uh, they have a sporadic moment of insight and they're quite beautifully aware of who they are and of their life narrative. So this is Rudy speaking. Let's see if this works. If it does, thanks to Emily.
sense of terminal lucidity, even in Alzheimer's patients who are barely conscious, who are barely responsive, um, we, well, we hear them all the time. Uh, how suddenly um, a patient can, just before death, say their goodbyes to their loved ones, remembering their names, maybe recalling an event uh, after a decade or so of not learning, of having lost first their short-term memory and then their long-term memory. Complete mystery. It's a complete mystery. Um, somehow, just before death, they're, they're tapping into, I think, the, uh, the web of collective consciousness where they can once again, with what they have left, with those few synapses they have left, they can tap into it, construct it, get it out just before they die. Um, don't really know what's how that's happening. Scientifically, we won't know for a while, but it's undeniable that it happens, and it's amazing. Okay, I should be able to move on now. You might have to go to the bottom left hand of the of the screen and use that arrow rather than your computer arrow. Okay. Bottom left hand of the slide, you'll see an arrow, a progress arrow. Even in oh. Alzheimer's patients who are barely somehow barely responsive. Um, Emily, can you move this along? I don't think you can, right? Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, so paradoxical lucidity. Um, this beautiful article in Alzheimer's and Dementia uh, just two years ago uh, by renowned uh, scientists. Uh, paradoxical lucidity, a potential paradigm shift for the neurobiology and treatment of severe dementias. I'm not going to go into this in depth, but it's all about uh, unexpected cognitive lucidity and communication in patients with severe dementias. Uh, what do we do with this? How do we interpret it? Uh, it could be open to many, many different interpretations. Um, some of my Hindu friends in Mount Vernon, Ohio, uh, who give incredibly meticulous care to um, older adults with, by the way, um, Down syndrome who get into their 50s and 60s and then become uh, increasingly uh, subject to uh, the onset of dementia. Um, they just say namaste. Uh, when I ask them why you are so meticulous, they say, well, uh, I honor the divine in them and they honor the divine in me. So again, it's beyond hypercognitive values. It's much deeper than that. This is something really special. So um, there's a beautiful piece of music called Appalachian Spring written by <clears throat> a famous composer named Aaron Copeland. And this is just the first minute or two as it's introduced by Leonard Slatkin, uh, who I happen to know because I lived in Detroit for a while, who was the conductor for the Detroit uh, Symphony. Just listen to this, it's quite amazing. In 1987, several people went to visit Aaron Copeland at his home in Peekskill, New York. They included the conductor, Murray Sidlin, and music historian, Vivian Burris. They went there to try to get Copeland's permission to make a chamber version of his one grand opera called The Tender Land. At this point, Copeland was in severe stages of Alzheimer's disease. He would die a little over two years later, but he was unable to communicate verbally. Nonetheless, this group, as well as others, were constantly visiting, telling stories, talking about his music, about his influence and importance in this country. On that day, Copeland suddenly rose out of his chair, and he walked over to the piano, and he played these six notes.
those notes, those two chords, form the basis of Appalachian Spring. They're heard at the beginning, throughout. And those chords are the last we hear in this piece. What was Copeland trying to communicate? Perhaps it was simply to tell everyone that he was still here. Or perhaps he was saying, this is what I want you to remember of me. Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. It's a beautiful piece of music. Unfortunately, we can't listen to it. Um, and let me try to get myself out of here. Okay. So if uh, if you want to try hitting the escape key um, of, of your keyboard. Oh, that that did it. Okay, good. That's the that's the secret. Thank you, Emily. Okay, no problem. Um, so he wrote, um, so long as the human spirit thrives on this planet, music in some living form will accompany and sustain it and give it expressive meaning. And that includes the deeply forgetful, in fact, maybe especially the deeply forgetful, because as their lin linear rationality fades, they come perhaps into deeper contact with these very, very deeply evolved aspects of human experience, music, rhythm, rhythm, and so forth. Um, here's a vignette um, from a woman in Ontario. Uh, I spent three hours yesterday afternoon with my sister and I tried to make sure that every facial expression, the tone of my voice, the intentionality of my focus was positive and loving. I didn't understand a word she said, but it didn't matter. I felt loved. Systems, the most complete full stack I felt loved by being loving and Wendy felt loved by receiving my love. At the end of our visit, she said, I want you to stay with me always. And this was a medical student here at Stony Brook. Um, it was in his last moments that my mother seemed to be rewarded for all um, her hard work. My grandfather looked at my mother and spoke to her with complete lucidity for the first time in a year. He so talked about the old times when he used to walk her to school. Then he talked about me and told her to make sure I kept working hard in school. And the last thing he said was how proud he was of her and that he loved her. And the next morning he was gone. He's now doing his residency in psychiatry at Johns Hopkins. Um, and then uh, we did a program on, on um, paradoxical lucidity at the New York Times Center in Manhattan in 2013. And uh, the, the author of 10,000 Joys and 10,000 Sorrows was on stage with, with me and a few others. And later on, she wrote me an email and she said, in that late stage when words are gone, except for those very occasional moments, she, my mother, looked at me intently and said forcefully, God, physics, and the cosmos. And I'm not going to go through this uh, video because I'm assuming that a lot of you have encountered uh, Henry uh, through music and memory, but uh, it's beautifully narrated by uh, Oliver Sacks, uh, now deceased. Uh, and it's just incredible to see how personalized music can bring people back into themselves, can bring them into a kind of somatic self-identity and then afterwards and i've done lots of little interventions in this area myself and a little bit of research they can actually converse at least for a brief period uh some much more coherently in response to the right sorts of close-ended questions so uh, uh you just never know how much is there beneath the surface so why do hypercognitive philosophies of personhood fail what do they fail to notice creativity everybody knows how incredibly creative 
people people can be. I remember being at an art therapy uh, class in Cleveland, and there was an older gentleman with pretty severe dementia. He would come in and he would draw on a piece of paper in pen, in pencil um, a kind of a chaotic uh, set of lines, but there would always be a single line through the middle. And uh, he couldn't respond to my questions. But one morning I asked him, so what is that line? And he said, it's a, it's a map for my daughter to get to my house. And so these things um, um, can be really surprising and hope, right? Hope, my definition of hope in the conditions of um, deep forgetfulness are being open to surprises because you just, you just can't rule anything out. Symbolic rationality emotion, relationality, including dogs, uh, mirth, somatics, music and rhythm, beauty, smell, taste, spirituality, touch, consciousness, continuity of self-identity. This is a painting by Willem de Kooning, who was an abstract expressionist, a very intense uh, ex abstract expressionist who got in a lot of fist fights in Greenwich Village in Manhattan in the 50s and he was the artist of the age of anxiety, uh, Auden's expression. And uh, he was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's by uh, the Cornell <clears throat> Memory Disorders uh, Center. And for 13 years, he still painted. Now, he was up in a loft and he had an assistant and, and it was sporadic. You, you couldn't predict his behaviors, but he would just occasionally dip his brush in in acrylic and go up to a uh, uh, to an to an easel and he would he would he would paint and uh, uh, when he died um, he, he actually painted until six months before he died they had a posthumous exhibit of his work at the um, Museum of Modern Art and one of the uh, reviewers said oh he was a shell a husk he was gone he was absent he was half dead this art makes a mockery of the real de Kooning. Uh, but in fact, the, the one I liked said, wait a minute, this is a man who had progressive dementia for a period of 14 years. And throughout that entire period, he knew who he was, what he was. He still identified symbolically with the paintbrush, uh, with that pair of dungarees uh, uh, that he loved so much. Uh, and, 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 and so again, it's an emphasis on what's there not so much what's gone. Um, uh, I think his later work looks a little more like Georgia O'Keeffe. It's a little more feminine. Um, it's a little less unruly. It's a little more elegant in a certain way. It's more peaceful to be sure. Tactile and relational identity, dogs to the rescue. Uh, boy, the Alzheimer's dog movement is a big thing in Australia. And I think it certainly is in Scotland. I'm assuming it is elsewhere too. Um, but this is an email um, from a woman I uh, was speaking with at a conference in Brooklyn where I was talking about the dogs. And she said, bringing Lola, name of a, of, a, of a poodle, to see Alzheimer's patients has made a tremendous difference in helping me open up the line of communication. Take Marvin, who is 91 and lives at home with his wife. He has advanced Alzheimer's. He has a full-time aide. Um, he sleeps in his own room while his wife has the master bedroom. Marvin had walked into her bedroom and fell asleep in the bed since the morning. The aide and his wife couldn't get him up. I walked in the room with Lola, put her paws on him and said, Marvin, get up, look who came to visit. Marvin popped up excited to see Lola. I was able to lure him out of bed and into the family room where his wife was. He couldn't contain his excitement. His wife and the aide couldn't believe it. Lola brought back his memory of his dog, Sparky. Boy, if that isn't beautiful, I don't know what is. And of course, you know, there are nice websites. The Australian website is www.dogsfordementia.com.au. Uh, it's really quite amazing. Uh, I was in Sydney some years ago and uh, we there were about a hundred people with uh, dementia and they had their dogs with them. And they went on a march down the main street toward uh, uh, toward the uh, the Sydney Hospital, um, and um, <clears throat> they had their dogs right there with them, and and everybody just was 
aghast. They, they'd never seen this before. And a cab driver jumped out of his car and he looked at me and he said, what's this dogs are for blind people? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <clears throat> but um, anyway, so these are aspects that make a difference. Jim's twig, I, want, I once went to a nursing home in Ohio, went into the special care unit and they had little biographical sketches on the wall, which is a very good idea. Talked about about Jim and how he he uh, he had two sons and uh, you know he had a successful career in insurance and so forth. So I asked the nurse to bring me out and sh you know introduce me to Jim, which she did. And then I sat down with him and he had a white branch, a little thin stick in his hand, and he put it in my hands. And when he did that, he smiled so effusively. It was incredible. Um, it was like the brightest smile I've ever seen. And then I, I handed it back to him and I thanked him. And a little later, I asked the, the nurse, what's the story with Jim and that twig? And she said, well, he grew up on a farm and he loved his father very much. And his far, father gave him a chore every morning, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. And so Jim had somehow in this kind of, you know, separation attachment dynamic, going back to an earlier time in his life that he most closely associated with tender, loving care. So that's there. I could go into this in lots of different ways, but symbolic rationality is actually more important to me generally in life than linear rationality. So rationality as a decisional capacity, the linear stuff is not that morally important. It is rationality as a source of self-identity that matters, not who, uh, uh, it, that is the rationality of who we are is more important than the rationality of how we proceed. And in this sense, the deeply forgetful can be very surprising. So assume that grandma's still there, not a shell husk and be kind in a world where you can be anything, be kind. And um, so I once wrote in a journal called First Things, talk even to the most cognitively disabled, calling them by name, speak with a warm and calm voice with a joyful facial expression, <clears throat> bending down to make eye contact, communicating with them rather than around them. They will sense that, they will pick it up. Now, <clears throat> I'm gonna flip through some things here. On, on the biomedical side, there's so much frustration. Uh, this is a statement from the NIH in 2010, but nothing's really changed. Currently, there's no evidence of even moderate scientific quality to support the association of any modifiable factor, nutrition, herbal preps, dietary factors, some of this may change, uh, uh, prescription or non-prescription drugs, social or economic factors. Again, I'm not so sure of everything here, but basically the point is that there's no easy way that we're aware of to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease, although that's been the holy grail of the Alzheimer's Association. This is a flyer that goes back to 1997, a world without Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, the cholinergic hypothesis was fresh on everybody's mind and we were going to come up with the cure, but that didn't happen, did it? Um, Aricept on a scale of one to 10, it's okay, but it doesn't work miracles um, uh, by any means. Um, I recall being involved in some of those studies with Peter Whitehouse in Cleveland. And we found that for a certain percentage, maybe a third of subjects, there was a slight increase in attentiveness to tasks. So if they had a cup of water in front of them, instead of wandering off after one sip and forgetting about it, they might have two sips or possibly three. And they might have a little word finding improvement. Um, but uh, this would not be stable over time because there's still uh, in an intractable uh, progression, and it didn't make much difference in terms of global clinical assessment. So um, pharma has a little interest now in the cholinergic hypothesis. They're focusing on amyloid plaques, but we don't know if the plaques are causative. So most recently in the U.S., you may have read about this just three months ago, our FDA, Food and Drug Administration, convened a, a panel of 11 individuals. It's always 11, so they, they don't have a, a split vote. Uh, Biogen's new drug, uh, uh, aducanaba. I don't, I don't think I say that right, uh, aducanumab. Uh, it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to hard amyloid plaques. 
it was voted down, zero yes, 10 no, one uncertain by the expert panel, and it was not approved. Um, so uh, again, you know, this is a problem for the biomedical model. We hope it works out. We hope ultimately there's a solution, but this may be too complicated a disease, and it may just be an inevitable part of an aging brain. Um, I'm going to skip through it. None of these preventive efforts have been successful. Maybe try Mediterranean diet, exercise, social and intellectual engagement, walk peacefully with friends to a Greek restaurant and then play a little poker. Meditation against stress. <clears throat> um, most neurologists now are saying that one of the seven or eight factors that come into uh, hippocampal atrophy is uh, stress. So it's that protracted high level of uh, stress hormone, uh, cortisol, which affects wound healing, uh, uh, vascular health, but also has some bearing on the hippocampus. Uh, consider a dementia dog, do music and memory. <clears throat> I would say that these kinds of things um, are probably going to give you more, more benefit than any, uh, any pharma that we have available right now. Uh, but again, that's my opinion, and 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 um, and I'm not against the pharma as long as it doesn't do any harm. And I think most of it is relatively harmless, but not entirely so. Um, so in the meanwhile, um, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe um, maybe the NIH is right. Maybe uh, we need to uh, turn back aging itself. And so that maybe people will be on average perhaps living to be 112, 114, 115, and there'll be a compression of morbidity. So they won't have these uh, age-related uh, illnesses. And that's the way we'll solve the problem because we're in this world now of betwixt and between. We're, we're living to be so much older than we were 100 years ago. Uh, and, and so we're much more susceptible to Alzheimer's in Japan my wife's Japanese. I spent a lot of time in Japan uh, doing Alzheimer's-related activities. Um, you know, um, the average life expectancy is about 85 or even 90 now, uh, and and that means that about 10% of the uh, um, of the population uh, has some sort of uh, dementia. That's a lot of people, and and how do we ever solve this problem? It it it's just really difficult. Um, so I like the biosocial, biopsychosocial model. Uh, Alzheimer's is a spectrum disorder. Every case is different. Um, social and psychological states feed back into the brain. That's something that it, it's neuro, neurodeterminism is completely overrated with regard to Alzheimer's disease because there is now neuroplasticity. There's epineurology. We know that what we do with an environment, how we interact with people, uh, how we handle aesthetics that can actually affect the brain itself. And there's probably no drug as good as personalized music or and any outlier benefit due to, uh, I think any outlier benefits due to some of the pharma is probably the result of a mixed diagnosis. So I like this book, Gayatri Devi's book, The Spectrum of Hope, an optimistic new approach to Alzheimer's disease uh, where she takes this kind of very broad uh, um, uh, insightful approach to her patients. Um, a nice study uh, that came out showing that actually, in terms of maybe preventing cognitive decline in older adults, a sense of purpose um, is helpful. Uh, older adults who rated high uh, on purpose of life had a 30% lower rate of cognitive decline than the low quartile. So it's high quartile versus low quartile. And this has been replicated now a couple of times. So, you know, if you have a noble purpose that you're living for, uh, it can keep you going uh, in a more functional way for a longer time. Maybe, again, these are not absolute statements, but they're interesting. And then there are all the, the practical ethical quandaries, I'm aware of time. Um, enrollment and research, I'm not going to get, in, get into that. Diagnostic disclosure, autonomy and safety, restrictions on driving, autosomal genetic testing, PS1, PS2, <clears throat> um, susceptibility testing, um, the APOE4, EE4 in particular, advanced planning, intimacy in nursing homes, pain, nutrition, and hydration. 
um, you know, the, you, you, a lot of people just don't take pain seriously in the deeply forgetful. Um, the prevalence of pain in elderly nursing home residents, about half of whom have dementia, is 40 to 80 percent. So that's due to arthritis and other chronic conditions. It's not just due to the underlying reality of being uh, 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 demented, of having Alzheimer's or whatever. I was in a unit not too long ago, and there was this one woman who should not have been there. She should have been in a hospice, but she was in a bed and she had a tube in every orifice, natural and unnatural, and uh, including a feeding pig, and she was just screaming to high heavens and everybody could hear it. It was really shocking, but somehow the family insisted that she'd be treated with every possible technology, damn the torpedoes. And, um, uh, you know, it, it seemed to me like someplace on a continuum between assault and torture, uh, but she wasn't being given any pain medications because it was assumed that what she was expressing was really a result of the underlying dementia itself. There is now, since 2000, the pain aid, the pain AD, the the uh, scale that everybody can use. Even you know, I, I mean, actually, uh, social workers, nurses, anybody can use this just to get a sense of where somebody uh, scores on this pain scale. And they are using good pain medications now. Just ethically speaking, uh, in this one study, it's a little old, but I think it still holds. Uh, you know, 95% of older adults just in waiting rooms of their geriatricians would say that under conditions of uh, dementia, they would not want um, life-sustaining procedures. That's a very broad statement. And as far as feeding pigs go, um, <clears throat> um, this is the, the so-called terminal stage of uh, Alzheimer's. Um, and you, you don't get any life length enhancement if you use a feeding pig vis-a-vis -vis assisted oral feeding because with the feeding pig people are getting decubitized, they're getting uh, aspiration pneumonias and so forth. So you're really perfectly fine with assisted oral feeding and no one should ever say, look, if you don't give her a feeding pig, you're killing her. It's just not true. Actually, at Case Western, one of my friends, <clears throat> Michael Gatterer, invented the feeding uh, uh, the percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube, the feeding pig, and that was 1989. And he invented it for kids who were born and, and, and had to be supported for long periods of time. In 2000, he, he lamented the fact that the feeding pig had ever been introduced into nursing homes. It was never introduced in Canada, but in the US, yeah, it was very dominantly used. And he thought counterproductively uh, you know, partly because of the financial reimbursement. Um, so I'm going to, oh, well, okay. Nutrition, juicy gelatin, milky gelatin, applesauce, prune bran. Assisted oral feeding is not the worst thing in the world. I actually did it with my grandmother a long, long time ago. And that's how I got introduced to the field of Alzheimer's. Um, a big topic, you can't avoid it is, and I will, I'll wind up my presentation here, is uh, physician-assisted suicide. <clears throat> um, uh, people can go to the Netherlands, then go to Switzerland where there's no six-month rule. In other words, uh, in most countries uh, where they have assisted suicide, uh, two independent clinicians have to say, well, if somebody's going to probably die within six months or maybe a little more, and therefore they can avail themselves of assisted suicide. But, oh, and, and, and so it's mainly used for people with pancreatic cancer and such things, but also ALS, because with ALS, you can fairly well predict that death is relatively imminent once the musculature around breathing begins to atrophy. Uh, but you can't, with Alzheimer's, by the time you could ever say that somebody's going to die within six months or even 12 months, they've long lost, long since lost their capacity for uh, decision-making and agency. And so they're really out of the picture, except then in places like the Netherlands and Switzerland. So this is a commentary about a Mr. Vine who was a street clown in San Francisco. And he, uh, <clears throat> um, he actually flew to Switzerland uh, to, um, 
uh, a place where they, in fact, uh, called Dignitas, interestingly enough, facilitated his death. I, I'm not advocating this, but I'm just saying that it's around and it's something that has to be uh, thought through. There's a little bust of Jonathan Swift that you all know of from the basement of St. Patrick's. And that's the uh, entrance to St. Patrick's. And that's me about 10 years ago, having the time of my life. Uh, and this is a forward from His Holiness the Dalai Lama for the new book, which is called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. And that'll be out in the summertime. And it's all about these deeper themes of, of, of moral value and worth, even when rationality has slipped. So thanks. <laughs> okay. Stephen, thanks very much. And I'm sure if we were in the room, we'd all be applauding. Uh, <laughs> fantastic overview. So look, I'm aware of time, but I think this is worth the few minutes extra and <coughs> certainly to get um, Prof. Sean Kennelly's uh, thoughts back. I think relative, lots to, to, to think about, relative few actual questions, but actual praise for the talk. So Sean, over to you for a few minutes of reflection. Oh my goodness, where do I start? <laughs> uh, post, I mean, I think that was a, an outstanding talk. And I mean, I think there, there, I mean, there, there are bits that you and I would probably bounce back and forth and discuss. And I think probably both of us have, have, have been in around and supporting the care of people who are living with cognitive disorders long enough to know that there's a big gray zone between the, you know, some of the absolutes that we, you know, if you like the, the points that we advocate for, we also have sometimes softer edges where we know that there is, there is margins around. I suppose one of the one of the things I would say is as as a clinician now who's been looking after, and I suppose all clinicians come with their own personal experiences of, of supporting people living with with cognitive issues. But as a clinician working with people with dementia for the last 15, 20, you know, 15 years anyway, um, early on in, in training, I became very, very, you know, it was it, it became very crystal clear to me that there was this tension between a medical model and a social care model for dementia. And actually it really did form, you know, was a formative part in my approach towards trying to develop services to support people with dementia is actually to challenge that piece, both externally and then within myself as well, that there wasn't a limitation whereby I said, right, this is where I step out. But similarly, that there wasn't a piece whereby on a social care piece, a, a physician or a clinician was excluded from the expectation that they would feed into it. So I think, you know, it, it really, you know, that biopsychosocial model, it is what is most important. And I, and I suppose in, in, in more recent times where I've been a clinical director of the memory service for people who are living with intellectual disability and Down syndrome, I've seen, you know, to be honest, to a certain extent, the hazard of a, of a you know, a, a very social care model, whereby many of the people that I'm seeing with intellectual disability, I've never had a formal diagnosis. There's never really been, you know, that dignity that has been given towards trying to identify what might be at the root of. So without, I, I think you can have a biological piece whereby you at least give the respect towards trying to understand what is underpinning some of these changes and to address and to come up with treatments, hopefully in the future, to support people living better with these changes without actually having to turn away from a model that just categorized people as mild, moderate or severely intellectually disabled without really much, um, you know, oftentimes without much uh, jurisprudence around what might have actually caused it. Now that has changed more laterally, but for, for a good number of decades, that was, that was what was, um, you know, that, that was what was the, the, the standard of care. I think the other piece was is in that, you know, as we view consciousness versus cognition, it's to know that there's so many different prisms through which we see, um, you know, through which those things are perceived. So, you know, at its core, we try to always have the individual's perception, but then there's the family's perception, there is society's perception, which is increasingly as we age, and society's intolerance for people changing their value structure as we age. So their, their expectation that actually we become more, you know, you know, just continue as we were. And if there's a change or deviation, we try to pathologize an awful lot of these changes in values or, 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 or you know, moral viewpoints that a person might have as they age. We kind of try and say, well, there must be a reason underpinning it. Something must have happened that has made somebody think differently. So I think, and, and then there's clinicians often see it different to, 
how other health and social care professionals see it. And then I think there's nearly another wraparound, which is the academic and philosophical view of, of consciousness versus cognition. Uh, so I think it's, it's you know, and it's, it's a dynamic piece because people's, you know, living with a dementia or a, a cognitive is, is it's a, an evolutionary um, change rather than a terminal change. And we would always, so when in the clinic and within our memory service, we tried to use the phrase of a diagnosis of hope. I do use the term dementia, but I understand that, I understand the stigmatization and the deep negativity. And I suppose my approach has been to a challenge that stigmatization directly and try and actually, you know, really incorporate a philosophy of living with dementia rather than somebody feeling that they've been delivered this uh, terribly terminal diagnosis and to actually then work through a process in our post-diagnostic services about how we can try and enable and identify those hobbies and interests that people can evolve uh, and to really highlight that evolutionary aspect of living with dementia rather than it being a terminal state. That said, if the biological part of my brain, the medical part of my brain is still very much along the lines of you know, we know now and there's increasing evidence around brain health and that, you know, potentially 40% of people living with dementia, you know, we may be able to prevent it. And there is increasing evidence down that line. And I, I think when you put that together with that pursuit of trying to identify treatments to at least mitigate it, and that if you take the Framingham cohort, so some of the evidence comes from that. I mean, so an 80-year-old 40 years ago was 40% more likely to develop dementia than an 80-year-old today. And we know that the mean age of onset for dementia in that cohort has gone from 80 to 85 years. So if you like, that's, that's health span, as you would term it, you know, rather than just looking at a dividend lifespan piece. So I think there is there is indicators to say say that, that the biological model is trying to support um, you know people living longer and living healthier and living better. But I completely agree on the other side that we shouldn't have there shouldn't be a trade off from the holistic and social care support network that we set up around. And uh, I mean one of the, the last things I, I I'll, I'll leave with is you know early on in training when I would look after people in you know from residential care that staff in residential care were able to express to me, people who had very advanced dementia who were largely aphasic would express a preference for one person versus another person to bathe them or to feed them. And that, you know, so these people who often may have difficulty recognizing family members within that intimacy of care would still recognize and have a preference from one person over, over another. And actually these staff who would have only known them in latter years were able to understand that commitment. So I think that really gets to that sense of consciousness. Uh, and you know, that would have you know, similarly been one of those things that has always motivated me to, to understand what are the behavior, you know, when somebody is, is disorientated at home, looking for home, that it's an expression of a sense of insecurity. So that sense of home that pre-existed was the secure place. And even though they're in home, what they're trying to express is a sense of insecurity rather than it being a disorientation for location. And similarly, when you're misnaming your daughter and your spouse and things like that, is that it's the affection of love and those, those deeper relationships that's probably been uh, you know, expressed rather than, rather than the, the individual names. So I'll leave there, but I find it a really stimulating, really stimulating uh, talk. And, um, you know, I, I think we would have 95% of everything in agreement, in violent agreement. Yeah, yeah. That was a beautiful response. And I, I really appreciate everything you just said. I think it, I, some of my comments are, are uh, a, a, a bit uh, more provocative than they need to be. But I, but I think you're quite right. And, and uh I appreciate your your response. It gives me a perspective that I can benefit from. Well, listen, uh, I just want to bring uh, things to a close. There's an Irish phrase, uh, is shea lucht a liad, which means we could have done a lot more of it. But it is a lunchtime <laughs> seminar. Really appreciative of Professor Post, really appreciative of the reply. I think it brings out a, a really an emerging movement for us to share our common humanity of our own potential for all levels of forgetfulness, including deeply forgetful. Lovely comments from our participants. And just briefly to say, uh, uh, just a trailer for next week, next month, uh, Louise Uni, uh, 
clinical senior lecturer at Barts and London School of Medicine is going to give us a seminar on flourishing through creative inquiry in healthcare uh, with the chair, Professor Brendan Kelly, and to discuss in the hub our, is a community. Stamping the hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.